time for our regular Trash Talk segment. And this week, Marcy Trent Long talks to the Drink Without Waste Initiative advisor, Helga Vantenout, about how we can stop plastic getting into the ocean in Asia and worldwide. And this episode is co-produced by Crystal Wu. Hey, Trash Talk listeners. Today we have a super interesting show and special guest this week. Helga Van Turnett slipped into Hong Kong fairly unnoticed last year when she moved here with her family and HKU professor husband. She's director of Wealth of Flows Consulting and currently advises the Drink Without Waste Alliance. But before that, she worked with McKinsey and Company and wrote some really important circular economy research papers. So today we're going to talk about one of them, which the McKinsey and Company wrote with Ocean Conservancy, an NGO, called Stemming the Tide. And it was an important piece of research that looked at how we can stop plastic here in Asia and all over the world from going into the ocean. So thanks so much for coming, Helga. Thanks you so much for having me, Marcy. <laughs> okay. Now, I know that you're a writer, but we're going to make you speak a little bit more. And maybe you can just give us some background on Stemming the Tide. Why was that an important research paper at the time? Well, Stemming the Tide was researched and written and published quite a long time before ocean plastics was a real concept for, let's say, the average citizen. Um, if you would just look at Google Trends, for example, the number of searches on ocean plastics went up tenfold between the time we wrote that paper and, you know, five years later, four or five years later. Right. So now ocean plastics is part and parcel of our common conscience. It wasn't back then. But why did we write the paper then? Um, on the one hand, there was a robust body of science uh, available already on uh, the fact that there were ocean plastics in quite a large amount. But earlier that year, there were new papers coming out, for example, Dr. Jembeck's uh, famous science paper that pointed out that the problem of ocean plastics was much bigger, so a much bigger scale and increasing much more rapidly than we had uh, previously thought. So that's happening on the one hand. On the other hand, at the same time, that year, there were new, innovative, entrepreneurial solutions being developed to try and remove that plastic from the ocean. For example, in the Netherlands, there was an energetic young man that was uh, developing solutions for starting to attract press, was starting to attract investments to, um, to do something about the issue. Uh, however, if you ask any manufacturer or any cook for that matter, trying to remove a whole bunch of small items from a big soup is not easy. No, it's not right? from the ocean. Exactly. So then, that so was trying to remove plastics before they get into the ocean seemed like a better idea. So that was what we set out to do. How do we best develop land-based solutions? And Jenna Jembeck's seminal research was this 8 million tons of plastic are going into the ocean every year. Yeah, exactly. And then what were the implications? What did she talk about with Asia and that? So... One of the reasons we start focusing on Asia in that paper was that uh, she also found that um, the large majority of plastics actually come from f just five countries, um, China, Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam. So we started to take those countries as focus areas. And then specifically, we did field work um, in both China or field research, I should say, in both uh, China and the Philippines, because we also wanted to figure out in what way 
solutions were, I say, cross-border or, or universally applicable versus needed to be adjusted to the uh, local conditions. And so what were some of the things the case studies came up with? Yeah. So one of the points was um, the importance of collection rates, not specifically of plastics collection rates, but of waste collection rates overall. In China, for example, you had a very uh, contrasting situation with the Philippines. In the Philippines, almost all plastics get collected. In China, however, there's a large variety of situations with ultra low collection rates of just 5% in some of the rural areas to, you know, medium rates of 65% in some of the urban areas. Um, so one of the solutions, obviously, in, in function of that would then be we need to shore up these collection rates. Um, and as we know, in the meanwhile, in China, a lot has happened, especially in the urban areas with uh, quite some innovative um, collection programs. A second differentiator was the situation of waste pickers, so of the informal sector, uh, which is quite an important presence and motor of the um, waste collection system in the Philippines. It is relevant in China, but Per capita, for example, there's a lot less of them, and they actually have a lot less access to the waste stream in comparison to, for example, the Philippines. In China, most of the collected waste goes into a sanitary landfill that's uh, secured, so they can't just um, access the waste once it's there. And, um, and this research came mm -hmm. out before National Sword, right? Before China blocked waste imports. It right? was, yeah, it was at the early days of the policies, and that is my third point, of course, of, of differentiation. Uh, good question. Um, is on the importance of imported waste. Um, in China, a, a large share of plastics on the market are actually imported. Um, they were at least back then. As I said, it was early days of, um, of, uh, of National Fence and the other programs. Um, and um, so we hadn't seen the real impact of that yet. Um, Remarkably so, I had forgotten that we had written this, but uh, I, I had uh, revisited a report just ahead of, of, uh, of our chat here. Um, we said back then that for these imported uh, volumes, uh, we did not need to develop separate solutions, that the other solutions uh, proposed in the report would be adequate to also deal with those volumes. As we see today, um, the imported volumes uh, move so much in the world, right? So the fact that China has now closed its borders to these has impacted nearly every other country in the world. You know, US and Europe have no place to take their low quality plastics. A lot of uh, it is as a consequence ending up in even worse conditions in Southeast Asian um, countries and places like right here in Hong Kong where the recycling industry has largely developed around that trade. So the import and immediate export into the mainland um, of plastics has to a large degree and will further collapse um, when further international uh, restrictions are coming into place. So we, back then we looked at it as a fairly localized issue. Now we know it's all hanging together. It's a big international trade in waste. That's interesting. And mm -hmm. you, you highlighted the upcoming Basel Convention yep. impact. What, what's maybe you can tell our trash talk listeners about that? So most people, if familiar at all, or most listeners um, would know uh, the Basel Convention from restrictions around the trade and movements of electronic waste. A great uh, recent development has been that expanded to also cover plastic waste. Um, it doesn't prohibit 
uh, trade or, or import and export of these wastes, but it imposes that between certain types of countries, it cannot be based on an individual trade between individual commercial parties. There must be a national approval of such a trade. And that is a terrific next step to make sure that we don't just go and hide our lowest uh, value waste streams. Of course, as I said here in Hong Kong, we also need to come to grips with that. And um, But I would say, you know, going forward, and you know that's some of the work I'm, I'm doing right now, this is a terrific opportunity for um, the Hong Kong uh, recycling industry to use that capacity for our own waste streams. And there's a lot to do there. Right. And Swire and Baguio and Alba are building a plastic, PET plastic recycling mm -hmm. plant. PET and HTPE. And HTPE yep. the, by the end of the year, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that will be the... Um, uh, are we allowed to ask you when we might hear something from Drink Without Waste? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, so... The, the, the parties that you that you named are, are participants in the alliance that I am working with right now, which is called Drink Without Waste. Um, we are developing a position paper on what we think should be happening with drink-related um, waste in Hong Kong. There's actually a really exciting group to be working with. So there's NGOs in there, there's retailers, there's waste companies, and there's uh, beverage companies. Um, and it's, it's a very progressive group. And you know, if, if you think back of the research that we did in, in the Stemming the Tide paper, um, we need to have a set of strategies to deal with plastic waste and other beverage waste in this case, but that is quite broad, right? We can't just recycle our way out of this. We need to also design our way out of it. We need to dematerialize, think of alternative ways of consuming our beverages. Um, and all of those have been taken into account in the initial set of strategies for drink without waste. And so what we're doing now is you know, taking the next step and say, look, we think that as this group of, of organizations, we can handle this in Hong Kong, we can set up a high performing system. And we are actually explicitly asking the government, I'm saying we, but so this is the <laughs> drink without waste working group who I'm working with. Um, we are actually explicitly asking the government for a formalized, a institutionalized system around that. Right. But of course, we're not waiting for that to happen. Uh, there is a wide variety of voluntary initiatives already happening today. Right? Which is exciting. Yeah. So one of the conclusions of your reports stemming the tide that's kind of surprised some of the zero wasters and recycling advocates was that you really favored incineration as a way to stop ocean plastic, particularly from China. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I, I applaud any watchdog for keeping a close eye on, on the narrative on the one hand and on the technical details on the other hand of any analysis and solutions proposed. So I think that's a good job um, that they did there. Um, of course, they conveniently uh, chose to ignore that we did not put incineration forward as the primary infrastructure measure, but as a more or less unavoidable component of a set of solutions that was needed to turn off the tap immediately, because that, that was the core premise, right? Is every single day we have that stuff going into the water. What do we do between now and two years from now? As I said before, we can also not recycle our way uh, out of it. So we actually analyzed 21 different levers or types of interventions from which five were the most promising, as in both effective and affordable. And incineration was indeed uh, one of them. Actually, when, when we analyzed in which order you should execute these, incineration came in last. 
right? So it's not as if we said must incinerate first and foremost. Personally, I agree that there's a lot of concerns around incineration as such. It's a quite a blunt tool. It's large capital uh, involved, long-term investments. Um, so when you apply it as a, as a I would say, a stopgap uh, uh, against uh, plastics in the ocean, um, you need to be very careful of how you go about it, how you size it, how you safeguard against um, erosion or, or the fact that your other recycling measures might never get off the ground just because you locked in all of these uh, volumes into your incinerator. So. I agree also, um, I would say finally, with their um, observation uh, that we more or less took the unstoppable growth of plastic uses um, as a given. Right? So I would say, on the other hand, luckily, we could continue with the Ella MacArthur Foundation. And less than half a year later, we published the first uh, New Plastics Economy report, which went much more into depth into how to uh, reuse, how to avoid plastics and so on. So. I would consider ourselves redeemed on that last point. It's so true. Well, and that's subject for the next Trash Talk, for sure. I'd be happy to be back. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Helga. And we Trash Talk listeners, it's really important to understand the circular economy. There's a lot of great initiatives going on in Hong Kong. But some of the research behind this stuff, as Helga mentioned, it's five years, 10 years in the making. So we're just, I think, starting to understand the implications of waste here in Hong Kong and even the world, and it's great to educate ourselves. So thank you for educating us, Helga. You're very welcome. You can find all the Trash Talk episodes on iTunes and the RTHK On The Go app. Thanks to our partners, Plastic Free Seas. And thanks very much to Marcy Trent Long for this week's episode of Trash Talk. It is uh, 11 minutes before 3 o'clock this afternoon. You're on the 123 show with me, Karen Kerr.